We're going to be looking at 2 Chronicles 26, and we're going to look at one verse this morning. It's verse 16. But this morning, I want to talk to you about the greatest threat to your life. Now, there are a lot of threats right now, we feel, right? Uh, There's a lot of things that can feel threatening. Uh, The pandemic feels threatening. Uh, A governmental regime, whichever one you're concerned about, can feel threatening, present or future. Uh, Economic downturn, losing your job, cancer diagnosis, crisis in your family. It's possible that one of those or a number of those or a number of other things feel threatening to you. But I want to talk to you this morning about the greatest danger and threat to you. It is actually a character quality, one which will do more to deter your relationship with God and your relationship with others than any other element in your life. It is the issue of pride. It is the sin we most hate in others but least recognize in ourselves. It is the sin where the more we have of it, the more we dislike it in others. It is the root of every other sin in our lives. Yet it is something that we not only tend to minimize, but even find difficulty in identifying it as destructive. Because we have uh, used the term pride in a positive way. We talk about school pride or national pride, or if we want somebody to do a good job, we say, take some pride in your work. And I think the contemporary sense of the word pride is actually to see value in something and be glad to be associated with it. But the Bible's focus on pride is something very different. Now, we're going to look at a guy's life this morning that illustrates the the four-step progression that pride can take in our lives. We're going to end with, I hope, some very hopeful good news. But we're going to look at this individual's life who gave himself to pride with the reminder that this particular issue in the Christian's life has always been identified as the most dangerous. Church leader, early church leader, Gregor the Great, who was the first to put together what is historically known as the seven deadly sins, called pride the root of all evil. Augustine, writing in the 400s AD, said that pride is the first sin, in that it encourages a person to displace God. In the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas wrote that pride is the mother of all sins, and more recently, 70 years ago, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis devoted a whole chapter to pride under the title, The Great Sin. This morning we consider a man named Uzziah, a king of Judah for 55 years. He was an individual who again, we're presenting as a part of this series on uh, still speaking. The voices, the lives of people biographically in the scripture that speak to us. And we look at this guy's life and we see summarized this progression of pride in his life in verse 16. Here's what we read. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Let's pray.
Lord, we sung some incredible songs this morning. We've talked about surrendering to you. We've talked about the stunning reality that we are chosen, we're adopted, we're your kids, you've made it so. And Lord, those realities of surrendering our lives to you and of embracing who we are are so much at the heart, I believe, of, of deliverance from the domination of pride, which is so much a part of our, our default lives. So Lord, teach us this morning. May we learn from this guy. May we examine our own lives. May we be stunned again with the glory of being called your children and the freedom that that really can bring from all things, including this dominating sin in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. In this four-step progression in pride, we see, first of all, that Uzziah became strong. But after Uzziah became powerful, when he was strong, Uzziah was a godly man. In the verses prior to verse 16, that's presented to us and delineated of how he was a godly man. And yet something took place in his life. And it's described under this phrase, when he was strong or when he became powerful. It was a dangerous time for Uzziah because things were going well for him. He had some strength. He had some, some power in his life. If ever a guy had a reason not to worry, it was him. He was the king. You can't take him out unless you happen to, to do a coup, but there was no threat of that during his reign. No one reviewed his performance. He's the king after all. He had no sales quotas to meet, no boards to account for, no performance standards. In his prosperity, he became proud. He didn't give thanks to God or acknowledge God as the source of his blessings. It is inevitably those times when we feel most secure that we are most facing the propensity to pride and to the security, the false security of strength. In his book, The Winner's Curse, Richard Fowler, a renowned economist, presents his re research into various... First, he started uh, studying gamblers in Las Vegas. Then he, then he built it much more to looking at successful business people. And what he discovered is, is what we would intuitively expect, that the people that, uh, that most gamblers that hit it big end up blowing it because they get overconfident. And he talked about how many business people had been successful and they began to feel like they, they were above the rules of how to do things and, and they took unwise gambles. They took, they took too big a risks. And he says it's the winner's curse. It's the danger of success. It's the danger of feeling strong. Now there are all kinds of moments in our lives when this can happen, of course. It can happen as a young person, as a young adult, when you feel your prowess and energy, when, when everything's ahead of you, when there's, in a, in a way, there are not many big worries of life, you can feel strong. It can happen when you're in your 20s, 
and you're just starting out in your career and starting to see things come together and, and you can feel like it's on the basis of your hard work, your discipline, your sweat, your energy. You can feel strong. It can happen in your 30s. And now you are, as you started to build your family and, and now you've, you've got a couple of kids and, and life is coming together, maybe you own your own home and, and you can see a path and, it's, and you're settling in and, and things are not quite as frenzied and you can feel strong. You can do it in your late 30s, into your 40s, into your 50s. When you've put your time serving your family, now the kids are starting to be raised and now you've got a little more time. Life is a little bit quieter, maybe, and you can start to feel strong. You can do it in the retirement years. You did your bit. You're ratcheting down. You're enjoying the grandkids. You start feeling strong. Now, maybe you're out there and you're saying, I, you know what? I've never felt that way. I get it. But my guess is, if you look back at your life journey, those times when you felt less threatened by external circumstances, you had the most propensity to go in cruise control. Uzziah here is in a season of his life where he felt strong, and it became the most treacherous time to have a false sense of what life was all about. The second thing we find is at that time, he grew proud. Now, the Hebrew word for pride means lifted up. Now, we, we see that in a dictionary. I looked in different dictionaries. Dictionary dif definitions of pride were things like this. An inordinate self-esteem, an unreasonable conceit of superiority, an overweening opinion of one's qualities. We, we talk about things, guy has a big head, he's full of himself. He knows it all. He's puffed up. This idea of being lifted up is the word for pride. And that's the biblical definition, that, that one is lifted up. Now, lifted up above what? I mean, what are we lifted up? Well, inevitably, it is in comparison with something else. And typically, it is in comparison with, with others at least how we perceive our relationship and our position in relation to others. Paul talks about this in one of the classic uh, addresses to pride in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, where he says this, praying that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have you didn't receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not? What do you have that you did not receive? He says, you're comparing yourselves. And you're finding benchmarks. C.S. Lewis brilliantly says it this way in Mere Christianity. He gives this definition of pride. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer, or better looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. Many of you have heard the expression, keeping up with the Joneses. You may not know that that phrase comes from a comic strip in the New York papers from 1913. 
It was by a guy that was actually living in Hempstead, Long Island, New York, and was writing about uh, a fictitious character who was living in a nice, uh, upscale suburban neighborhood who had some neighbors come in, the Jones. And everything about the Jones made them, he and his wife, uh, looking like less thans in, the, in their own mathematical evaluative of things. And, and their neighbor constantly was pointing the, the signal to them, we feel like less than the neighbors weren't doing it on purpose. It was just, they seemed to be cultured. They seemed to, to have money. They had charm. They had intelligence. They had beauty. So the whole comic strip was built out of these people trying to keep up with the Joneses. Well, we fast forward a century later, and we're still there, right? Because this is built into our, our lives, our hearts. Paul tells us that pride is actually a deluded view of self. We're trying to elevate ourselves comparatively with others. But he says, I mean, look at this. He says, what do you have you didn't receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Why, why are you evaluating yourselves, finding your identity in those things? You didn't choose your race, your IQ, your time in history, your family, your early childhood experiences, which everybody says is so formative, your personality, your physical appearance. They're the choice of God. Of course, we say, well, yeah, but I have the position I have because I work harder than anyone else. Really? No advantages experienced along the way? You think if you were raised in a hovel with a dirt floor with drug-controlled parents, everything would be the same in your life? I get straight A's because I study more than my classmates. Really? IQ had nothing to do with it? Family support had nothing to, to play a role in getting to this place? I'm somebody because I'm beautiful, attractive, intelligent. You received it, Paul says. Why boast in it? He says, we're, we're finding our identity in, in stuff that only makes us feel a little bit higher, a little bit better than others. And he says, it's, it's just a, it's a deck of cards. The problem with pride is a false view of reality. Now, if this feels like I'm beating you on the helmet, understand I've been beating on mine all week. I get this. We all are comparative. We all want to be greater than and not less than. But Paul is saying, I mean, have an honest evaluation of, of life. Well, Uzziah, because he had been successful as a king, because things were going well in the kingdom, this man who was a godly man grew strong. Nothing wrong with growing strong and having strength and success. However, it caused him to grow proud, which caused him to leave God. He was unfaithful to the Lord. I was interested in this word, thinking, what does it mean to be? What is he saying that he was unfaithful to God? Did he do bad things? Well, he did some, but, but I don't. And I, I looked at how the word was used in the Old Testament, and I specifically focused on how was it used by the chronicler. And I found that in 2 Chronicles 29, the exact word is used and explained. Here's what it says in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 6. It says, our parents were 
unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook Him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on Him. Do you hear everything about unfaithful? Here's what it is. They forsook the Lord. They turned their faces from the Lord. They turned their backs on the Lord. Every part of that sense of unfaithfulness is not that they did the wrong things. It's not that they didn't perform right. It was they were unfaithful in their relationship to Him. We use that exact same word to talk about a spouse that, is, that betrays a partner. The idea that I have been unfaithful to my spouse. I gave to other, someone else what deservedly was only given to her or to him. This is the, the beautiful thing God is saying. God is not really that worked up about the things you do except, be, or because, he only is concerned because of what they say. They say that he doesn't matter. They say that you want to turn to something else. Uzziah turned his heart to other stuff to define him. He turned, wow, I'm a king. He grew proud. I'm a successful king. I've done all this. That's where he found his identity. That's how he, he marked his life with a grade. That's where he found his joy and hope and satisfaction. And in doing so, he had a false view of himself because he was comparing himself to other people, maybe other smaller kingdoms. But in finding his satisfaction, his joy, his identity there, he betrayed the true place where he could find true satisfaction, true joy, true contentment. He betrayed and wandered away from the Lord. Whether it's a, an immoral relationship, typically out of need, somebody's feeling bad about themselves, be out about themselves, and they get a wandering eye, and they, and they get affirmation before they know it, they're in somebody's bed. But ultimately, it's, it's, it's the same sense that we're looking for someone else's bed. Maybe it'll be my job. Maybe it'll be the, getting a new house. Maybe it'll be having more money. Maybe it's my kids succeeding. But what, what happens is we begin to say, okay, I'm feeling better about myself because, you know, things are going good here, and that's where I'll find my identity. And it's a mirage. It's wandering away from the one place, the one relationship that will satisfy us, the one true definition of what our real identity can be and is in Christ. He wandered away. He left God. And what he found was he fell flat. It says in verse 16, this was to his destruction. In his case, he started ending up like the rules weren't for him. That he... God didn't need to be in control of his life. He could take it, and he ended up going into the Holy of Holies and wanted to do the all-incense thing himself, and God made him a leper, and he was humbled. He fell flat. Proverbs 16, 18 says it this way, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. 
What he found out is that God graced him with leprosy. Because there is something worse than falling. There is succeeding in something that takes you away from God. Because you will never be satisfied, especially if you have tasted the goodness of God and you have wandered away. The worst thing you can do is succeed temporarily in that arena where you think you will find your satisfaction. God then mercifully in many of our lives has allowed false. He's allowed our pride and our sense of of independence and and our now putting ourselves on the evaluation skid and wanting to be a greater than and trying to succeed in this. And for many of us, I mean, there's so many stories in this room and online, just in our church family, of God's merciful allowing things to be what we would look at and say, wow, what a fall. But what you find out there when you embrace God's grace, is there is something far worse than falling. It's succeeding in the thing that takes you away from God. But this falling flat can be a gift of God. Phil Vischer found this out. Phil Vischer is a brilliant animationist, a born-again Christian. He started VeggieTales. Incredibly successful. His idol, in his own description, was Walt Disney. His life goal, he he said, became to be Walt Disney, or maybe to be the Christian Walt Disney. Phil Vischer has written a book called Me, Myself, and Bob. I think we have it. Do we have a picture of that? Oh, it's not there. (laughs) up there. Um, and he highlights his journey in his company. It's a, it's a fascinating read. It's, a fun, it's an easy read. As you read through the book, you're drawn with the creativity and the energy of this guy, and, and a guy who genuinely desired to bring glory to God, but in his own recognition, his goal shifted toward his own glory. And God humbled him. He lost his company. And in a a salient moment in the book, he describes, it's late in the book, he describes a, a profound moment afterwards in his journey with Christ when he visited Disneyland again. And this time, I'll, I'll just read it to you quickly. I had lunch by Tom Sawyer Island, then headed to the place I knew would be the end of my journey, the very center of the park hub, in front of the castle where stands the bronze statue of Walt and Mickey, created by fabled Disney sculptor Blaine Gibson. Now an official legend, Gibson is the man responsible for every American president, the Hall of Presidents, and most of the pirates in the Pirates of the Caribbean. For Disney files, this spot in Disneyland is the Holy of Holies. I took a seat on one of the benches just in front, just in front and to the right of Walt and the mouse that had made him famous. Then I thought, and I thought about the prior 14 years of my life. 
my breathless pursuit of, of something. Impact, creativity, legacy, identity. I wasn't sure. I thought about, and he goes on to talk about Chris Olson, who helped me drywall his first little, little uh, business. And then he tells all these memories. And then he says this, And I thought about Marie, the 65-year-old woman who worked at our reception desk, the woman who on the day that I had to clean out my office had looked deep into my eyes and said, God is about to explode in your life. I smiled as I realized how right she had been. I looked up at Walt. He seemed so happy, so calm, like everything had been a breeze, a walk in the park, then something caught my attention. It was a woman and her adolescent daughter, camera in hand, walking toward me with big smiles. Oh, I thought, I've been spotted. It happens a lot. Fans will spot me somewhere and ask for a picture or an autograph. I've gotten used to it in the years since I first put myself at the front of a VeggieTales video. Some want to tell me stories or introduce me to their kids. Others simply want to say thanks. Watching the smiling mother and daughter approach, I quickly switched into gracious fan reception mode and smiled back. I was, after all, the creator of VeggieTales. It was part of my job. Excuse me, the woman said. Would you take a picture of us with Walt? I almost choked. They weren't there for me. They didn't even know me from Adam. I was just a stranger on a bench, a stranger who could take a picture of them with their real hero, Walt Disney. I cheerfully obliged, snapping their picture as they stood beaming in front of the bronze likeness of the man who had inspired them. Thank you so much, they said, and hurried away. I turned back to continue my thinking, only to find somebody else already sitting in my spot. I scanned the circle of benches, not a single open space. I couldn't help but smile as I looked up at Walt. Well, I guess it's time to go, I said, then turned and headed toward the front gate. Walt would be Walt, and I would not. Not even the next Walt, or the Christian Walt, and that was for the first time in my life, fine with me. I love what that lady said. God is about to explode in your life. This is at the moment of his failure. This is when he feels rock bottom. I don't know where you are today, but some of you undoubtedly are identifying with the feeling, ah, oh, life is just overwhelming me. That things are not what I thought. I, I, I'm struggling with who I am, what I am, where I'm going, what I'm going to be able to come. Am I going to be able to hold what I have? Let me just say this to you. If God is allowing you to be humbled, God is willing to explode in your life. God wants us to find our joy and satisfaction in Him. It is pride that, 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 that encourages us to feel that we can find it somewhere else. The Bible mercies us by humbling us. And there are two ways that God uses. Often, He will not choose the first if we choose the second. The first way God humbles us 
is to just let all the things that we are trying to find our identity in or some of those things begin to, to be a faulty foundation and crumble. And he brings us down. We've elevated ourselves. He lets us see what's real. God does humble us. I would say if you've walked with God for any amount of time, you have probably experienced that. But the kind God also offers another way. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then he says this, By casting your cares on Him. What's he saying? The way that we humble ourselves under God is saying, Lord, I'm not going to carry all my issues. I'm going to intentionally, every day, I'm going to bring them to you. And what happens if you don't? You may not think you're growing in pride. You may think you're going in fear. You may think you're growing in anxiety, which will probably be true. But what also is going on is you are acting a spirit of independence. I've got it. I'm so busy, I don't have time to pray. I mean, come on, I got work to do. I got stuff calling for me. I got got so much on me. And he says, well, go ahead. But what you're going to find is you can be a carrier or you can be a caster. And a caster is a person who humbles themselves under God and says, Lord, I may think I can carry it, but I, I know better. I'm giving this to you. I got these meetings tomorrow. Here they are. One, this one at 10 is this. Would you? This one is at 11 tomorrow. This one is at 2. Lord, I'm, I'm praying through everyone because, Lord, I'm giving them to you. We can humble ourselves. The other thing we can do is to remember who we are. I was talking in a context of a few of us with a young woman in our church who attended one of the two most prestigious academic institutions in our, in our nation. Um, these are where the brainiacs go. And she was talking about, she knew Christ, she had known the Lord younger, went to school, um, and she said, I didn't realize how much my brain and my intellect was my identity. Until for the first time in her life, she actually had to drop a class because she was in danger of failing. And it rocked her world. And she said, I didn't really displace that feeling. Until, and she talked about being in in a uh, training class we have here called People Helping People. But basically the design of it is to have you look at your own heart. And because you can't help somebody else know their heart until you know your own. And she talked about how the truth that set me free was who I am in Christ, my identity. That I am, as the song we sang a few moments ago, that you are accepted and chosen. That when the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. What does that mean? You're free from being on the line. The song says, when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And what's the next refrain? I'm a child of God. I'm accepted. I'm chosen. He wanted me. You're not going to be free by getting that new beautiful house. 
You're not going to be free from the voices by getting that next promotion. You're not going to be free by, by running away with somebody because they make you feel good and, and you think, well, this, this fling will do it. You're going to be free when your identity is really seeped with the reality that you're a child of God. If you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, He wants you. He knows you. He loves you. He, 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 he desires to pour into your life what nothing else can do. Our only part is to look at things realistically and say, you know what, God? I'm dependent. <laughs> I can't do this on my own. I need to yield to you the lordship of my life. I need to find my identity in you. And right now, if you're in a position, and I know a lot of people feel they're not, but if you're in a position where you feel, well, things are not so rocky, I mean, I, I see a lot of good going, watch out. Because when we grow strong, we can grow proud. And when we grow proud, we have already begun to leave God. And God may have to bring something in to, and I'm not doing this as a warning. I, I think it's a mercy. I thank God. The most humbling experiences of my life, when God made me most aware of my inadequacies, when I would say these are the times in my life I absolutely feel like an abject failure. I feel in those moments I saw reality. And I was overwhelmed with the love of God, who I was, what I am in Him. I wouldn't trade those failures for anything. They are my ultimate successes. And you know, you know what I'm talking about if, you're, if you know the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you want us. Thank you that you don't just let us go. Thank you that you freed Phil Bishner. The great success of this man's life is not veggie tales. It's that he's growing more and more into the joy of being loved by God. Because you were willing to explode in his life in that season when he felt most like a failure. Lord, thank you that you do that with us. Thank you that you give us the grace and the opportunity to avoid some falls by humbling ourselves. Lord, thank you that you want us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.